0: Welcome to Comically Pedantic, where we take a detailed look at the complicated concepts, characters, and history of comic book culture. I'm your host, Derek L. Chase, and joining me on this episode is the wonderful Kristen Thespina. Hi,
1: how are you? That was so much alliteration.
0: Uh, yeah, I, that's one of the weird things that uh I, I was sitting down and trying to come up with, like, what makes this actually sound at least somewhat fun? <laughs> alliteration always yeah. works for me.
1: Alliteration is my jam. I'm here for it.
0: So I should probably be up front about how much time I spent deciding whether or not I should actually write this specific episode. The reason for that is multi-layered. First, I want to point out that I had a personal relationship at one point with who we will be spending a lot of time actually talking about.
1: Like biblical one? Oh,
0: no, not that, not that, kind, of, not that kind of personal relationship. <laughs> uh, but I was a fan of this person's work very early on. Um, And that makes this difficult in and of itself. I wouldn't say that he and I were friends, uh, but we were aware of each other and even shared a table at our graduation from the Kubert School. Uh, Make no mistake though, everything I've learned since our time at school together has led me to believe that he is an absolutely terrible person. Which brings me to the second reason for my trepidation. This story involves a very sensitive subject, child pornography. And I don't want to make light of that subject, nor do I want to capitalize on the pain of others. What eventually led me to the realization that I needed to talk about this uh, is that I casually glanced at the Wikipedia entry for this comic book at the center of this particular episode and found absolutely no mention of the creator's connection to child pornography, which I feel is an important aspect that has been glossed over. This could be simply because mm. the indie comic book scene doesn't often get much coverage, so a small book's creator isn't on top of everyone's research. But with all of that said, and listener discretion advised, we can begin the story of the comic book Anne Bonnie and its creator, Tim Yates. Now, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb and assume that you have never heard of Tim Yates or Anne Bonnie.
1: No, I have not.
0: I think most people haven't. This is not one of those episodes that I would put out uh, and expect a lot of people to be searching for this particular uh, topic. Uh, it it just happens to be one that I know quite a bit about. And and I happen to know the creator. So it, it it just, it turns into a situation where I feel like it's important that at least this type of conversation is being had, whether or not it's like, the, the the effect of this person may not be as widespread as like some other people who have done some terrible things it's still something that should be talked about and, and should be kept in mind especially for anyone that actually like if you in the future stumble upon this book and you don't know about the creator it might be a bit surprising to to get this information and it also might be a little bit Difficult, like especially because sometimes you go to comic book conventions and meet these people uh it would be difficult to meet mm-hmm. this particular person. We'll get to why <laughs> um, okay uh, but i I just felt that part of it was uh important to, to bring up um and something to remember throughout...
1: So, oh. um, well, so so something about the book would make this like a super curveball to learn this information about him later
0: uh so he. The the book itself that we're going to be talking about um, is an all-ages comic book. Meaning that it uh-huh. is more often than not marketed directly to children. If you were like a parent and you happened to come across this book and you thought it was wonderful for your kids and you picked it up, uh you might like there's nothing to say that the, the book itself is wrong. It's actually a very fascinating uh and fun comic book uh it's just Mm -hmm. you maybe don't want to support someone who has done some of the terrible things that like tim has valid uh so something to remember throughout this episode is that i have to rely on my own memory and some conjecture in addition to the interviews that i've been able to find comic book journalism is a field that is dying and it really shouldn't There are too many places that can't afford to pay for the kind of work that allows for stories like this to be told. Clickbait headlines and listicles are common uh, among some sites because it's the only way to get the traffic that keeps them afloat. With all of that as a background, I think it's pretty clear why a lot of places don't have much emphasis on the indie scene. There are some, and they do fantastic work, but you won't always find a lot of info on people like this. I first met Tim sometime around 2008 when we both entered uh, the Kubert School. He and I didn't share classes or run in the same circles, but I was vaguely aware of both him and his work. He had been a nursing student prior to switching career paths and decided to become a cartoonist, but that's not anything I had actually learned while I knew him. That's just stuff that I picked up from interviews that I've read much later, like when this book was coming out. Most of what I knew mm-hmm. about him was that he was Christian and took that at least somewhat seriously.
1: It's clergy and Jason. I, I don't
0: know how Christian Tim actually was. Uh, I know that, okay. like, I I'm so I'm I'm in a weird place where like Christianity is not something that I really care that much about. It's not something that I spend a lot of time, uh, devoting myself to.
1: I mean, same,
0: um,
1: same, but I was raised it. And clergy molestation
0: jokes are my favorite. <laughs> well, this is one of those things where, like, I, um, any, any sort of interest in the church, I tend to look at as, um, okay, that person is more religious than me. And that, that is a huge gap there. So it could be you're slightly more mm-hmm. religious than me, and I still view it the same as someone who's, like, devout.
1: <laughs> like Bible, numbers. right so
0: i have no idea i don't know where
1: there are not different. i don't know
0: where he falls in uh in that category i just know <laughs> that he identified as christian and that was one of those things where i was just like okay i don't really care about that particular i mean of- it
1: sounds like he falls in the priest and altar boy category Well, that's true to me. <laughs>
0: uh <laughs> and i, I want to make it clear that like any jokes that you or i say in this particular uh, episode they're not necessarily meant to make light of the situation that happens um, but just that
1: this is what we call gallows humor uh, yes because this is how we as humans process super fucked up situations like kids have. absolutely
0: 100% (laughs) the other thing uh, the other main thing that I remember about Tim is that he was a damn good colorist Uh, I remember vividly a moment where I looked over to see him completing an assignment where we were to design a background of our choosing, and he had chose something along the lines of a scene from Asgard. He had illuminated uh, the halls with uh, all kinds of sunshine. It was beautiful work. He had found a way to play with colors that I thoroughly enjoyed, and I actually found it inspiring. That's part of why I got into doing a lot more color work, too, because I thought uh, he did such good work. I, I, I felt like, well, maybe I could try something like that. Um, and this is the type of work that you could expect with, uh, when he had a computer in front of him. He was really good at that type of thing. And in my first year, I took advantage of the school housing and was placed in what everyone referred to as the mansion. I've mentioned this on a previous episode. It's basically just, it's a large house with very outdated appliances and two or three beds per bedroom. And at the time, it housed around 25 to 30 students Tim was not one of them. And I'm not sure if he took advantage of one of the other housing options or if he stayed with his family. Uh, We only crossed paths at school. So I don't know where he was staying. But there was another artist living in the mansion with me at that time who is important to note, and that artist is Gavin Smith. Uh, Gavin, for all I can tell, is a very decent human being who doesn't deserve to be lumped into this story But he unfortunately plays a key role. After graduation, Gavin was offered to work on a new series called The Accelerators by a new publishing company, Blue Juice Comics. And this is also a point where, like, Gavin and I were not really good friends either. Like, we knew each other. Um, Mm -hmm. At one point, like, for a very brief amount of time, we shared a studio where we worked together. Uh, but that's not really, like, that's not all that uncommon. There's very few rooms in that mansion that you could take as a studio. So anyone that took a, a room, you were you were grouped together with some random people at some point. Um, most of what I knew about Gavin, uh, Gavin is also from Indiana, and I believe he still lives in Indiana. Uh, so he and I had a bit of a connection there. Uh, but, like, it, I mean... other than just kind of commenting on, uh, like, Indiana staples of things, we we didn't really cross paths as much either. Uh, So Blue Juice is an indie publisher that started the way it seems most indie publishers do. They wanted to make movies. And early on, they realized they couldn't get funding for the feature-length movies they wanted to make, and there needed to be another way for them to move forward. And around the time that Thomas Mum and Jeremy Schneider were freelancing on the TV show Comic Book Men, they came up with the idea of using comics as proof of concept for their movies and access to more funding. This sounds like a cynical approach, but it's one I've seen time and again, and it's also not wrong. Comic books are a fantastic way to approach selling a concept, considering they are both concept art and storyboard in one. The only real issue with this is when a comic book is made completely as a marketing Uh, Tool and not as its own story or respected medium, but I don't really find that this is the case Uh, I also have no doubt in my mind that these guys are fans and wanted a chance to work on comics because they thought it would be a Good idea. So it was an easy sell for this to happen They put together a publishing company and chose the screenplay for the accelerators as their first book and while talking about this on the set of comic book men one of Gavin's friends happened to hear about the idea and recommended they take Gavin on as their artist. And after a long interview, it seemed that this worked out in everyone's favor. So there's a lot of interesting information about the beginning of Blue Juice Comics and the Accelerator's comic book, and there may be a time where I feel it is important to go over this process as well, but that's not really what this story is about. The important thing to remember is that Gavin was now the artist of a series and would need to either color his line art himself or hire a colorist he trusted to add to his work. He chose the latter and asked fellow QB alum Tim Yates to step in as the colorist. Now, I'm going to quote from Tim himself during an interview with Word of the Nerd online.
1: Word of the Nerd?
0: Yeah, (laughs) I like that title. I like it, too. I feel like I pulled a sneaky move by becoming a colorist, because I was the only one in my class. That's how I managed to get work after school. Most of the students were trying to be pencilers. They would look for work, and when they would land a job, they would say, hey, I know a colorist. And that's how I met Blue Juice. Gavin knew I was a colorist from school and saw my work. I worked on a book, Genrise, from IDW with a friend from the school. Uh, He drew it, and I colored. As far as indie comics go, the accelerators did pretty well. Most reviewers praised the art, and the series gained a critical average of 8.7 out of 10 on the review aggregator comic book roundup. It's hard to find sales information for independent books since they are generally sold over the course of a longer period of time and at conventions or online far more than what you would find from like Marvel or DC. But it is safe to say that the comic made some money because Blue Juice's original plan was for two issues and they immediately pushed to expand on this. At the time of writing, as far as I can find, they ended up doing a total of 15 issues spread out over three distinct story arcs, and a 16th issue was recently announced, with probably more coming, considering the writer of the series has said that he has plans for four or five more volumes. Uh, and since there was a delay in producing this, like from when I wrote it, I do think that there are more issues have actually come out. I don't know how many, though, because uh, I, 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 I follow Gavin... Uh, on Twitter, and that's really the only time I see uh, the accelerators pop up. Gotcha. It's, it's worth a read, though. It's a pretty interesting story. Okay. Uh, really high sci-fi stuff. But let's get back to Tim, who had spent some time after graduation doing the rounds at conventions promoting various projects. And I'm going to quote Hannah Meen Shannon, who wrote this for Bleeding Cool. At New York Comic Con in 2012, I struck up, struck up a conversation with Tim Yates who I recognized from a previous discussion from the Kubert School some months before. I knew he was a graduate of the school and was interested in where his career path was taking him. He was engaged in plenty of work as a colorist. He told me at the con, but as we talked, I noticed he was sketching and tried to sneak a sly glance over the angle of his notebook to see what he was up to. I saw some very talented work full of energy and suggested storytelling. A girl pirate posed in the midst of an action scene. He told me it was just an idea, but one that wouldn't leave his imagination alone, and he found himself drawing her quite often. He hoped someday it might become a full-blown project. So, even at this time, it's pretty clear that Tim was leaning toward doing a series about a girl who becomes a pirate, and had been spending his free time working on that idea. Uh, in Tim's own words, when I started creating Anne Bonnie, Tom Mum approached me with the creator-publisher team-up, though I was already planning to pitch the comic to them, so the deal was pretty easy anyway. Uh, he even described his own method of creating this series. Quote, This is the first time I have either written or illustrated a comic, though I've been a colorist since 2011. I've always been fascinated by pirate history and inspired by adventure tales such as Pirates of the Caribbean and Indiana Jones. When deciding what I wanted my comic series to be about, I just mashed up all of my favorite things into one world and spun a story around it. So none of this is too off the wall from how a lot of fun series come into being. That's actually one of the things that I have always really liked about any series. It's when you can take a bunch of different genres, things that you just genuinely enjoy and you just shove them together. Um, mm. I think those are, yes. those are the most fun. Like, I, I don't, I don't, just because like uh, something is a particular genre, I don't necessarily want to stick with that. Um, I think it's more fun to just go with whatever you think is, is interesting. Um, right. And the idea well, is that's simple. What and it makes
1: like original new material too. Yeah,
0: absolutely. I mean, even Guillermo del Toro did something similar with his work on Pacific Rim. There was a history in place, and already being a fan of the genre, he knew he wanted to add things in that he wanted to see, but he never actually had. So, like, there's a scene where a little girl... I don't Have you seen Pacific Rim? I
1: haven't. I've heard of it. Like, I knew the name when you said it,
0: but I've not seen it. It's a great, dumb movie. It's just giant monsters versus giant robots. And there's a scene where, like, there's a little girl in the middle of a city, and there's, like, a monster rushing towards her. That was just one Mm -hmm. of the scenes that Guillermo del Toro wanted to do. And that was, like, one of his reasons for making the movie. He was like, I've never seen this before, and I think it would be really cool. Yeah, <laughs> I love that idea. It just—it's like playing in your favorite toy box. You just mash stuff together. Yeah. The story that Tim uh, crafted is described as follows: The Great Sea is still in chaos after the mysterious disappearance of the Pirate Queen and Bonnie. And danger lurks over every crest. Join Ariana aboard her stolen magical pirate ship on her quest to become the world's greatest pirate. Along the way, she'll make new friends and enemies, and learn what being a pirate really means. And I think that sounds... Like oh, wait. Just like, so it's
1: like... Hold up. So it's like a badass, like, girl power kind of book for kids, Oh, yeah. Too. Absolutely. And he sucks. Yes. Damn. That's unfortunate.
0: Uh, it's really... It's, it really sucks. And he, he he was one of those people that, like, even when he was in school, um, his ideas for comics were always, like, uh, he was always drawing like badass female characters.
1: Oh goddamn, son of a bitch! I know <laughs> badass pirate girls for little girls. Oh, but Kim Satcher wrote it. Damn, this is upsetting. This is upsetting on the level.
0: I, I mean, I. So I, when I first read about this, it was uh, at, like right after the right after it became public um what he he got in trouble not a
1: priest and ultra-leg christian he's a christian like my headmaster your headmaster yeah my headmaster one because i was a private christian high school and my headmaster was super pervy and we had like it was like not like a fancy private school we had some real classes and trailers so when we'd be walking like it's why i always wear shorts under my dresses because when we'd be walking like the wind would blow up our skirts and we were like going from like trailer to trailer and he'd try to like look up our skirts ooh yeah that's, I mean, that's, uh, uh, that's
0: unfortunate, I'm sorry about
1: that I mean uh, I, I definitely had friends who like had worse from him, I just kind of found him gross and annoying but nothing ever happens to me directly I just always mm. worse, worse now
0: yeah that makes plenty of sense I, don't, I, I feel bad having to transition back to this a little bit because I feel like that's a bit of an upsetting story. Uh, oh, but no, I guess this one I'm is fine. too. My friends have more <laughs> upsetting
1: stories than I do. Like, it's really fun. That was an aside. Transition. Transition away.
0: <laughs> so Multiversity Comics did a great in-depth description of the series and some of the symbolism Tim put into smaller details, such as the pirate ship being named Crimson, Crimson Dawn, after the Seaman's rhyme that goes, Red in the Morning, Sailors Take Warning, Red at Night, Sailors Delight. And I'm not going to go as deep into it, um, other than to point out that the cartoonish design of the series as the fantasy setting and the overall humor places this comic into what would be described as accessible for all ages. <laughs> and with Blue Juice behind the publishing, Anne Bonnie's distribution was picked up by Diamond Comics Distribution, a company that until very recently held the monopoly on comic book distribution and they digitally released through Amazon's own Comicsology. The first issue was released on March 19, 2014, and the approximate 3,500 initial print runs sold out in about a week, which landed it as the 352nd best-selling single issue of that month. Bleeding Cool editor Hannah Mean Shannon labeled it as a major success. The reviewers at Unwinnable gave a great write-up, stating, Furthermore, I loved Tim Yates' artistic design. It's a bit cartoonish, but again, this works well to seep the reader into the world of Anne Bonny. The character designs and the vibrancy of the color palette gave the comic a bright, polished look. Characters definitely ham it up for the audience, but this only aids to their persona, Ariana specifically. You know who the good and bad guys are just by looking through the book. If you're willing to give it a try i think Anne bonnie is a neat read regardless of my issues with the pacing of the comic i found myself immediately drawn to ariana and i want to find out the mystery of the ship which spends most of the issue doing its own thing yates and estes seem to have a plan and with the colorful and pleasing imagery and the bits of humor thrown in i definitely set sail with Anne bonnie again so Tim's book had clearly caught the attention of fans, and keeping a presence at conventions meant that he was able to connect with them on a personal level. By June 25th, the second issue of the series had been slated for release with a slightly smaller print run, and then, by October, a third issue was produced before going on hiatus. Now, throughout all of this, Tim was working on other projects. He continued doing work for Blue Juice and promoting his previous comics, like the coloring work he did for an annual, to a favorite series of mine, Hack Slash. A fact that I didn't even know until I was doing research on this episode.
1: Oh my god! Um, wait, what? Well, wait, wait, hold on. Hackflash?
0: Yeah, that's uh. You've I know you've seen those uh at my uh, up, my apartment. It's the series where it's basically
1: it's the girl with the bat, and then she has like a creature with the with the mask.
0: Yes, I. So I am a huge fan. Of Hackslash. It's one of my favorite independent comic books uh, uh, to be put out there. Um put
1: um, it on Facebook and check out the cosplay.
0: I, I will definitely do that. And so I, 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 I have up until recently, um, so this series ended a few years ago and then they brought it back. I have not read any of the series from when they brought it back, but I have the entire rest of the collection from like, the beginning of the comic until it like officially ended a few years ago. And I had no idea Tim had worked on it until I was doing research for this. And I saw Hackslash pop up in his um, bibliography. And I had to go like open up my books and flip through it. And I, I was shocked to find that he had worked on it so now oh, that's one God. of those those books that i have that i kind of like oh it's wonderful you there's a, a creator in there that i have to keep in mind
1: <laughs> it's oh my God. a little difficult
0: so uh things seem to be going fairly well and by june of 2015 and bonnie resumed publication on a scaled back quarterly basis by December of 2015, the first six issues of the series were collected into a trade paperback under the title The Journey Begins, and the whole thing went back on hiatus while Tim continued working and traveling to conventions. And this is where the timeline gets a little confusing. The seventh issue of Ann Bonnie was originally announced for release in July of 2017, but there was a long delay. And this is listed on Wikipedia as being attributed to Blue Juice purchasing the rights to the comic from Tim, which very well may be true, but it's hard to find very conclusive supporting evidence. An Bonnie did continue publication, however, but just not before some troubling information came to light. In August of 2017, Tim Yates, creator of An Bonnie, sued Blue Juice Comics. And there are several things to unpack from this, but the part I want to focus on is an allegation on the third page of the complaint, which reads as follows. On May 10th, 2017, defendant Tom Mum sent plaintiff Tim an email which purported to unilaterally terminate the contract between plaintiff and defendants in blue juice. On August 3rd, 2017, plaintiffs served defendants with a written demand for an accounting of the Ann Bonnie project. So these two points are extremely important to what comes later. It's clear that by May of 2017, that Blue Juice had decided they no longer wanted to work with Tim and that this severely irritated him. Now, I've read through the entire complaint, and unfortunately, I'm not a lawyer, so it's difficult to really parse out the truth from the legal writing. In total, there were 15 counts brought against Blue Juice, all of which basically revolve around Tim's ownership of his work, with the company, and any unpaid dues they may have owed him. Tom Mum is specifically called out as the reason contracts were stalled, as he is purported to have interfered several times to try to keep Tim away from his company. The sixth count brought against Blue Juice stood out the most, though. This was a count of defamation, and several lines are a little shocking. I'm going to quote, Defendant Tom Mum made statements of fact concerning plaintiff that were defamatory per se. Defendant Tom Mum acted negligently in regard to ascertaining the truth or falsity of the statement before communicating the statement or acted recklessly in disregard for the truth or falsity of the statement. And defendant Tom Mum's communication of the above referenced statements harmed plaintiff's professional and personal reputations. So essentially here Tim is saying that Uh, Tom's taking shit away from him Uh, he's talking shit and he doesn't know anything about what he's doing so it's hurting his career and his personal life that seems a bit odd from someone who is a publisher working with someone who's actually like creating art for them Yeah. the fight continued until September when a stipulation of voluntary dismissal was brought forth by Tim and the whole thing was dismissed outright I don't know what the stipulations of this dismissal were but it would make sense if the ownership of Ann Bonnie were to be transferred to Blue Juice since three more issues were still to be released. A year later, though, several sites around the internet broke an even bigger news story. I'm going to quote from the United States Attorney's District of New Jersey's own release. But I also wanted to point out that the judge presiding in this case is the same one who presided over the previous suit, that Tim brought against Blue Juice, quote, Timothy Yates, 31, of West Orange, New Jersey, pleaded guilty today before senior U.S. District Judge Catherine S. Hayden in Newark Federal Court to an an information charging him with one count of distribution of child pornography. Yates was previously arrested and charged by complaint on April 4th of 2018. According to the documents filed in this case and statements made in court, Yates is a comic book artist and the author of a comic book series which features a young female heroine on various adventures. Yates traveled to locations across the country to promote his work and attended comic book conventions which were frequently attended by children. On several instances in 2016 and 2017, undercover law enforcement officers accessed a publicly available peer-to-peer network and observed a computer with a certain internet protocol address logged into the network that was sharing child pornography images and videos. The computer and IP address were associated with Yates. Law enforcement officers executed a search warrant at the defendant's residence and discovered electronic devices belonging to Yates, Ye- which contained thousands of images and videos of child sexual abuse. Which is, obvi- you know, that's uh, terrible. And not really something that you as a publisher would want (laughs) associated with your book.
1: Yeah. Wait, is this guy still working? Like, does he still have a career?
0: Uh, He is currently in jail. Oh,
1: good. (laughs) Uh,
0: So it's, I don't know the specifics. It gets a little confusing because there's a lot of coverage of his arrest. And almost all of those uh, articles list a specific date for when he is to be sentenced.
1: Okay.
0: I found no no information updating what his actual sentence was.
1: Okay, but he is still...
0: Lost. I mean, I... I my, my guess is he's locked up. I mean, so, so throughout the entire time that Tim was suing Blue Juice for defamation, he was being investigated for having and distributing thousands of images and videos of child pornography. So further in that article, they state that the charge of distribution of child por- pornography carries a mandatory minimum penalty of five years in prison, a maximum po- a potential penalty of 20 years in prison, and a $250,000 fine. Mm. I don't know what he got. The minimum is five years. I would hope it's longer than that. Yeah, this is not like this is not a misunderstanding. Uh, This is not a situation where it is um, even just one person being hurt. He had thousands of images and videos. That's yeah. That that
1: should be. I super wouldn't be surprised if it wasn't only five, though, because the criminal
0: justice system is goddamn maddening. That is the, exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> uh, so uh, along the lines of what I said earlier, Tim was scheduled to be sentenced in January of 2019, but I can't find what the sentencing was, uh, but I am almost certain it was not long enough.
1: Yeah, but, no, it, it wasn't long enough.
0: <laughs> During this time, the seventh issue of Ann Bonnie was finally released, but no creator credits were listed. They took his name off of it. Uh, The comic's name and Tim's bio were removed from Blue Juice's site, except for where he was credited as the colorist of other series. I'm assuming that's a legal issue.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, In October of 2018, Tom Mum posted the following on their Facebook page. Dear Blue Juice Comics fans, we have disturbing news to share. There is no easy way to say this. Tim Yates, the writer and artist of our pirate series Ann Bonnie, has been arrested for distribution of child pornography and has pled guilty. We first learned that there were credible allegations against Tim over a year ago, and we were shocked and disgusted by the news, as we're sure many of you are now. As fathers and family men, we were horrified by his actions. We immediately cut all ties with Tim and stopped production on Anne Bonnie. We have not spoken to Tim or worked with him since. When we tried to alert other creators about the situation, Tim sued us for defamation, even though he had confessed his legal activities to me personally. Due to this litigation and the pending investigation against him, we were not legally allowed to discuss our knowledge of his crimes with anyone else until now. Now that Tim has pleaded guilty, and that the verdict against him is a matter of public record, we are free to tell our side of the story. The past year has been devastating for us, and among other things, has left the future of Anne Bonnie in limbo. Blue Juice Comics retained the full rights to Anne Bonnie, but the situation was obviously more complicated than that. Could the series move forward with, forward with such a dark shadow hanging over it? After many long and difficult discussions, we decided to continue the story. We still believe in the characters and the world of Anne Bonnie, and I think it would be wrong for this world to be destroyed by the despicable actions of one individual. We we hope that you feel the same way. We have brought on a new creative team, and they've been hard at work for the last uh, few months creating new and Bonnie adventures. Tim Yates is no longer involved in any way and receives no profit from any comic sales or blue juice income. We realize how upsetting this news may may be to people, but we thought that everyone, especially our readers and fans who have been so incredibly supportive over the years, had a right to know. Please don't hesitate to reach out to us if you have any questions, concerns, or thoughts of any kind. So, I I I I I really appreciate the fact that they wrote that, and I, I really do think that um, even though, even though there were there was obviously a lawsuit going on, they were doing their best to warn other people not to work with Tim. Yeah, like it seems very clear that's the real reason that Tim sued them.
1: Yeah. That's, um, well, that's kind of that's what my friend's dad does. Like my friend that was the victim of it goes door to door, or mm-hmm. uh, not door, yeah, goes door to door in their neighborhood, um, and hands out just like little informational flyers to families with kids, telling them not to trick or treat at this guy's house.
0: We, as as a civilized society, we should have ways to work around this. That, for whatever reason we don't. I mean, there are obviously, there are going to be issues that come up no matter what. But, like, I feel like there's a better way to address this type of thing.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, well, and, 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 and I don't want to f- fault Blue Juice, either, because there is, like, there is something to be said about ending the comic book and being, like, we're just done with that. We don't want to be associated with something that was created by someone like this. Right. And there's also something to be said uh, to, to do what they were doing and saying, no, like, this has uh this has a fan base that shouldn't have to be affected by this. They shouldn't have to right, deal with. Right. Yeah, cuz like
1: ah that sucks. Like I I'm so angry at like how good the actual story is
0: out. It's sort of the, along the same lines of like I'm I'm a huge Buffy the Vampire Slayer fan mm-hmm. and a few years ago it came out uh Joss Whedon had done some uh problematic things.
1: Oh, okay, missed that. that, I made, that?
0: Me, it made me look back upon... So it was mostly like he... Uh, but from what I read, I, I don't know the full context to be able to give it to you right now, but just something along the lines of uh, he was constantly cheating on his wife and usually with people that worked for him uh. Uh, and creating a problematic workplace. Uh. Um, so it it's difficult because like Buffy the Vampire Slayer is a huge... Uh, influence on me I love that show but now it's always going to have a bit of, like I have to separate the art from the artist
1: right? a bit like fucking um, Firefly I love
0: right most of Joss Whedon's work I have been a big fan of not everything but nearly everything that he's done I thought was fantastic I, I followed his career so closely Mm-hmm. And uh, now, now there's like that issue there where I I don't know what necessarily to do. Like if he pr- brings something else out, I don't know that I would watch it. Maybe, yeah. Um, it, I, and I, I don't, I don't know that there is a good um, answer to that either.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, like I don't want to support someone I, who has done terrible things. It, and and he, maybe he has apologized and tried to make right what he uh, once did wrong. Okay. I'm not entirely sure. I, I, I would have to look into that. Like, uh, Dan Harmon uh, was also accused of something similar. Uh, not, like, cheating on his wife and, and creating a problematic workplace in that regard. But in terms of, like, working with women and sort of devaluing someone who he had a crush on. Oh, uh, who did that's not cute. reciprocate. That's cute. But Dan Harmon, Dan Harmon called her back, uh, like, years later, I think, and was like, he apologized, and this has become like, a. you can look up his apology, and it's a wonderful apology. He never once uh, makes it about, like, oh, here's all of my excuses for why I did this thing. It's just... I did a bad thing. I need to be a better person, and I am sorry for that. And, and whatever you have gone it. through is I'm, my fault.
1: I am actually scrolling, like, looking for um, a post right now that I may or may not actually end up being able to find. But there's, like, there's like different categories of apologies for shit like this. Yes. And my friend has something really good, if I can fucking find it. Um, oh, I got it, I got it. Yeah, I wanna talk about something called performative contrition. It's a term common in abuse survivor circles and a very common abuse tactic. It's been seen on full display in the SFF community in the last two days. Um, So this is from June 26th. So let's break it down. So what does performative contrition look like? Simply, it's when a person who's caught being abusive apologizes in a grandiose fashion, meaning very publicly in front of a lot of people. They use extremely self-prostrating language. The apology tends to be highly focused on how bad the behavior is affecting the abuser, not how it's affecting the victims. The language is self-deprecating, contrite, and seemingly everything you want to hear on paper. Let me be clear about the performative aspect aspect of performative contrition. The apology is not for the victim. They aren't apologizing for those who They're begging the pardon of the audience. It's for them. They aren't asking their victims to forgive them. They're placating the audience. They're trying to placate the people who can collectively hold them accountable, kill their sales, mess with their social standing, etc. They aren't apologetic with the women they hurt. They're asking the men watching to stick by their bro. There's also another insidious aspect of the contrition, ingratiating, almost harassing apology, which I have gotten one of. Um, They are so self-deprecating, so loud, so in the trust of their contrition that it is embarrassing to watch, especially if you experience this in person and not online. They make their apology so relentless, violating your physical and emotional boundaries, that it causes discomfort. In online forums, they constantly are posting, threatening how sorry they are, explode your DMs, feeds, online walls with relentless messages to forgive. They reply to everything with relentless self-deprecation and promises to do better. This is not about being forgiven. This is harassing, over-the-top, relentless apology meant to punish you, embarrass you, make you sorry for forcing them into that position. And the biggest aspect of performative contrition is placating and deflecting. The goal is about not being held accountable. That's why today we saw a certain dude bro melt down talk vaguely of having receipts against the victims and then vacate the territory, keep rage quit. It was, well, I said the sorry and then I wasn't relieved of all accountability like last time. The goal of the over public apology is to placate, it didn't work. That's not how things are supposed to work to the abuser. Paint by numbers, they said sorry, now you say that it's all good bro. Another aspect is to make the victim feel gaslit and isolated. You feel pressure to forgive. There's public pressure to just let them off. In fact, they're so sorry in everyone's eyes. You feel like everyone will think you're the bad one if you don't just let them off the hook. That's purposeful. Every aspect of it is about undressing, gaslighting, recentering the abuser as the victim, and minimizing the wrongdoing. I previously said it's horrible how followers are lining up to forgive the abusers and their mentions when the apology wasn't theirs to forgive. But in a very real way, the apology was for the followers, not the victims. It's a performance to avoid fallout. In the end, a true apology is focused on making the victims whole again. I don't wanna talk about when do these men get to come back? I wanna talk about how are we as a community going to make these victims whole? Because things aren't okay, again, once these men can operate in our spaces again. That's just returning status quo. Things are okay, finally, once the harmed parties receive restitution for what was taken from them. And in my years, an abuse survivor advocacy has taught me a truth. It has to be the community that makes these victims whole again. The abuser is incapable. The abuser is too broken, and the recovery statistics for predators is dismal. Waiting for the abuser to pick this is a losing game. This is a community issue. The community has to repair it, and that very much may mean never inviting these men back into our spaces. If the community wants to make these spaces safe for everyone, the shortest distance is a straight line, my friends. Remove the people making it unsafe. I didn't realize how long that was when I started reading it, but like...
0: No, no, that's, that's
1: wonderful. Right? Um... Yeah, like, my, my friend shared
0: that. Do you have uh, the ability to, like, did your friend write that? No, entire... that is, oh.
1: she just shared a tweet from someone named M.M. M. Chill. M.M. M. Chill.
0: M. M Chill. I'm going to see if I can find uh, and link to that yeah. for this episode. What we have now talked about is obviously pretty depressing. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's a very sad story, especially when you have children who are excited about a comic book series.
1: Yeah.
0: And one that features a, like, a strong female character. Uh, it, it's, it's terrible when that feels like it's taken away. Because I, I really don't know what the future of Ann Bonnie is. Or
1: they, they want to do more, one.
0: but yeah, it might not go anywhere.
1: Could somebody like buy the right to the character who doesn't suck and like do their own rendition of her?
0: Well, the the so the the publishing company now has the rights to it and they are working with other people. Like one of the other people that I know that worked on Ann Bonnie was another uh Qbert School alumni, uh Nick Justice. Mm-hmm. So maybe Justice? he can do something with it. His uh, yeah. It's oh, it's J-U-S-T-U-S.
1: Also his dad was a cop. He's a cop? So Oh my gosh.
0: His dad was a cop, oh
1: his dad was a cop,
0: so his dad was officer justice
1: <laughs> oh my God, that should be a character
0: so he might be able to do something with it. I don't know um but, but regardless, like even just having this in the- in in the background for your comic book that it's that's more depressing than how I normally would like to end a story like this i mean i I talk about depressing stuff on this show a mm-hmm. lot um. But I want to give a spotlight to some comics that are out there that are pretty amazing and are for kids, or at least good for kids. A personal favorite of mine is what CBR once called a masterpiece of comics craft. And that's Jeff Smith's Bone series. And if you've never heard of Phone Bone or his cousins, it's worth checking out the story uh, as they make their way from Boneville and wind up on an adventure hunted by rat creatures and the Lord of the Locusts. It's basically like a kid's version of Lord of the Rings. It's very fun, uh, and if you get the collected edition, it's a huge book, but they also make like colored, smaller like uh chapter books, kind of, so it's easier to get. I mean, it is a comic book, um, but it's it's easier to, to get in the smaller versions and have kids read that. But if you have someone who is, they, they don't mind having a giant book to read, getting the collected edition is, is wonderful. And it's one long story. So mm-hmm. perfect. Uh, there's also Princeless by Jeremy Whitley which follows a young black princess as she sheds fairy tale trappings and escapes from her tower, trades her dress and crown for armor and a sword, and sets out to rescue her six sisters from their own prisons. Yo,
1: what
0: is it? It's called Princess. I want that. Yes. I
1: want to read that. That sounds
0: epic. It's so good. I highly recommend it. I, I'm also, like, I'm, I'm a big fan of, like, all ages comic books. I'm a huge fan of Sonic the Hedgehog, which up until recently was published by Archie Comics, is now, I believe, at Boom Studios, or or no, I'm sorry, it's now IDW. Um, I was always a fan of the games growing up, uh, but I was never truly in love with the character of Sonic the Hedgehog until I started reading the comic book series. The comic book series really got me into um, who Sonic the Hedgehog is and like his relationships with his friends, and I thought it was really wonderful. Um, I also think it is probably going to be an episode of the show in the future because there is a, there is a very funny story in <laughs> how Sonic went from Archie to IDW. I looked it up just out of random curiosity. Like, why did they end Sonic the Hedgehog at Archie? Mm-hmm. And I could not stop laughing as I was reading through the, the different reasons.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. Okay. And I would also... um think about throwing some support towards Gavin Smith's project, like Dead Legends from a wave blue world and what blue juice comics is publishing since they were so unfairly involved in such a dark thing, but they handled it as about as well as anyone else really could. They also just happen to be putting out really good work. Um, and Gavin Smith, I also, I want to thank publicly. I, I messaged him privately and I asked him, I was like, look, I don't have to use your name in this. You mm-hmm. are not like a central role in this story. Uh, so I was like, if, if you don't want me to, I won't. Mm-hmm. And he said, it's fine. He wanted to read this over. He read it over and he was like, you were spot on with uh, uh, basically my conjecture on like, I read through the complaint that uh, the this lawsuit that Tim filed against Blue Juice. And I was kind of just guessing. Because I'm not a lawyer. I can read what some of these things are, but like I don't know necessarily what motivated a lot of this. I was just Mm -hmm. guessing based on timeline. And according to Gavin, I was accurate. And I really appreciate him looking this over and giving me uh, permission to actually use his name in this. And I, I feel horrible that he had to be associated with it anyway. Yeah. But and and thank you for coming on and listening to this. I, I I it's hard to make something interesting and funny and entertaining out of something n- that is not any of those things. Yeah. <laughs> uh is there anything that you want to uh is there anything you want to plug?
1: I can plug my little web project that I update sporadically. It is acceptancerevolution.com. Uh it started out as um I mean certainly it grew out of kind of stigma in the LGBT community against the B and the T of the community. Um but mm-hmm. kind of evolved into um you know the acceptance revolution. So anybody who's made to feel like not a part of whether it be race, bullying. Um I have I actually have a friend who's trans who wrote a piece for me on not about transness, but about, like, not feeling accepted by his family when he went being. So it's, like, oh, yeah. it's a space for anything, for anybody who has a story to tell. It's acceptancerevolution.com.
0: And with that, you can find more information, including all of the sources for today's episode at comicallypedantic.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram by searching at PedanticCast and at Derek L. Chase on both platforms. New episodes come out most Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.comicallypedantic.com. This show is entirely listener-supported. If you would like to support this show, help us stay ad-free, and possibly be mentioned on air, you can check out the Patreon link at the top at comicallypedantic.com. If you have any comments or questions, you can send them in text or audio recording to comicallypedantic at gmail.com. Please indicate if you'd like your name or question read on the air. We will be back next week with a discussion episode where we try to explain what you need to know to understand comics. But until then, you can find more exciting adventures at your local comic shop.